Would you stand with me one more time here for a bit, and we will read the text that we have before us this morning. We're beginning 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, and we'll read verses 1 through 9 together in unison. Let's read this together. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today as your children, your household, your church. And we ask you to take this text and use it to preserve us in the faith. Transform our hearts toward you. Change the way we think. Father, we ask that this this next hour would not be merely an opportunity to fill time, to accomplish a religious activity or duty, but that you would cause your word to be accompanied by spirit and power and full conviction. Would you open the eyes of our understanding even to the condition of our own hearts, the propensity of our own fallen humanness. You would cause us to, to change in our affections. We confess to you that we love ourselves rather than you. And that is our basic nature. And that we need Christ. We need the Spirit of God within us to cause us to love that which is worthy of love rather than that which is worthless. Father, we pray that you would use this text to work in us, to will and to work for your good pleasure, that you would complete that which you have begun in us. We pray that each one of us would would be able to submit ourselves to the authority of your word, that we would find it sufficient, and that it would cause us to be matured and complete for every good work. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. 
Well, this morning we come to chapter 3 in the letter of 2 Timothy, and you know well the background of the letter of 2 Timothy. This is Paul's last letter. He's on death row. He is waiting for his martyrdom. He has been warning Timothy about false teachers and about corruptions to the gospel, and he's called Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to proclaim it boldly being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He's called Timothy to stir up the gift of God within him in order to do those high works of of goodness that God has called him to because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of power and love and self-control. He's called Timothy to hold fast to to the sound words, to follow the pattern of sound words and to guard the gospel. He's called Timothy to perpetuate that pure word by passing it on to other faithful men and to live that way as a soldier and as a student and and as a marathon runner and many other images that he brings out in chapter 2. And even as he does that, he encourages them at the end to do so with meekness, gentleness, trusting the sovereign grace of God to work repentance in those who hear. Now as we come into chapter 3, Paul is shifting his focus a bit and he's going to begin here introducing his text by a, a compelling exhortation. What is Paul's opening exhortation to us? He says, understand this. You know, I hear a parent looking at a beloved child and saying to them, you have to understand me. Listen to me. Understand this. Get this. Don't let it go one in one ear and out the other. Right? How many of you parents have said something like that? Understand this. This is so important. So what do you want us to understand, Paul? Well, by way of introduction, he says, I want you to understand something about the last days. What are the last days? That's a common word throughout the New Testament. And most often, when people hear the word the last days, they typically think about this short period of time right before the the coming of Christ, the rapture. And that's really not what the New Testament writers have in mind when they use the word the last days. What they're talking about is the period of time between the first coming of Christ and His second coming. Those are the last days. It's the last era of God's redemptive work in the world before He comes and exercises His kingly right to recompense and to reward. And we know that because Paul, as this text unfolds, shows Timothy that he himself is living in the last days and must respond accordingly. And he says, Paul, that in these last days, this era of time between the first coming of Christ and His second coming, that there will come times of difficulty. Notice again the the verbiage that, that Paul is employing here. There will come. It's not if. There will. It is absolutely certain that there will come times of difficulty. Seasons of difficulty. Throughout this era that we call the last days, throughout the world even, at various times in different places, there will be seasons of great difficulty. 
Just like Jeremy Hensley prayed this morning for the persecuted church elsewhere. There are seasons of time and in places of earth where it is extremely difficult. This morning, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are hiding and worshiping together in private. They are experiencing a season of difficulty. And maybe we will also very soon. These seasons of difficulty, this word difficulty, is a word that speaks to something being hard to handle, something troublesome, something even dangerous. And and that's why I've titled the message what I have, Discernment for Dangerous Days. It's even harsh. This word can mean even fierce or savage. Do you ever wonder? Do you ever wonder how, for example, the people that the five very well-known missionaries, one of whom was Jim Elliott, the people whom they shared the gospel with, how did they get to that place of living? You ever think about that? Because... After the flood, who was there? Noah and his family. And yet somehow over the course of history, groups of people have so degraded in depravity that they are savage, right? I look at our culture and I think we are moving in that direction. Who knows how many years will be till we are savage people, devoid of the gospel. Could it happen? Absolutely, it's happened before. Hard to handle seasons, troublesome seasons, har- dangerous, harsh, fierce, savage. Would you say that we are living in such days right now? And how could we know that for sure? And what would be our response to such times? Well, that's what Paul goes on to tell us in this text. But please notice, again, by way of introduction, right off the bat, he says, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It's not a constant thing day after day necessarily, but there will be seasons that come and go. It could be that after this, God brings a great awakening to our area. That would be wonderful. And then... Maybe someday down the road again we come to seasons of difficulty. I hope we have an awakening coming. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful the Lord returns? Do you love His appearing? But what causes seasons of time during the last days to grow dangerous? What is it? What's the cause? (laughs) I saw Keith say it. People. Right? Because people. It's because of people. That's the point of this text. Verse 2 tells us it's people. It's people who cause seasons of time to be dangerous days in which to live. It is the depravity of man unleashed upon one another that causes savage seasons of time. In in this text, the Apostle Paul gives us a five-fold description of the people who cause dangerous days and exhorts us about how to respond to such people. Again, notice 
the two main exhortations. First, understand this. And there's a second exhortation at the end of verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, avoid such people. Those are the two exhortations of the text. The rest of the words deal with a description of the people who cause days to become dangerous. Understand this. Get the knowledge needed. Get acquainted with what I'm saying here, Paul would write. Be perceptive. Maybe even have discernment about these days. And he says, avoid such people, which means to turn away from them, to deflect them even. So, what does that look like practically? And I want you to remember a text. So, because I don't want us to misunderstand what he's talking about and, and what kind of people Paul is actually saying to avoid. So, please turn with me for just a moment back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gives a skillful description of a two-sided response and that, that Christians often get confused by. Have you ever heard anybody say that we are called to separate from unbelievers? That the church is called to separate from unbelievers, have nothing to do with an unbeliever. That's not what Paul says, actually. Let's see who Paul says that we must actually avoid. Okay, so let me give you the context of 2 Corinthians 5. There came in the church of Corinth a very egregious sin. In fact, <clears throat> you know what? I'm in the wrong text. I think it's 1 Corinthians 5. I'm sorry. Go over to 1 Corinthians 5. I'm looking at this and 2 Corinthians 5 in my notes and it's, when I look at 2, nothing's there that I'm looking for. So, 1 Corinthians 5. So, this, this particular sexual immorality that had entered the church was so heinous in Paul's mind that it required immediate discipline. So verse 1 of chapter 5 says, It's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And so Paul tells the church to take action about it. And here is what he says. Let your eyes go down to verse 9. He makes a distinction. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's talking about unbelievers there. We are to associate with unbelievers. Why? We've got to give them the gospel. We have to, we have to make disciples of the nations. We need to reach them. But, verse 11, now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed and so on. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Here's our responsibility. Purge the evil person from among you. I think that's what Paul has in mind here at the end of verse 5. Because what we're going to see is that the final description of verse 5 here is that these people have an appearance of godliness. They do profess to be brothers. 
And so when they take up these descriptions that are true of those who cause times to be dangerous, and at the same time profess to be religious and godly, those are the particular profile of a person that we are to avoid. We are to exercise church discipline for someone like that. Not to fellowship with them as if nothing is wrong. So here's the main point of our text this morning. I summarize it this way. By the grace of God, understand days of difficulty and those who affect those days, but avoid being influenced by them. So what are the people of dangerous days like? So that we may recognize them and respond rightly to them. I have five descriptions that you can see in your outline. Number one, life without love. And really, that's not entirely accurate of a statement. They have something that isn't really love at all. They have an affection that isn't really love at all. I want you to see that this is sometimes challenging to get our minds around these rather lengthy lists of descriptors, whether they're virtues or, or depravities. Paul gives 19 qualities in verses 2 through 4 which describe the people whose lives affect seasons and make them dangerous to live in. And these, this, this list can actually unfold, and I, and I hope you can see this. I was planning to do a, a slide to help visualize this, but I, but I failed to do that. This list could actually be constructed in what is called a chiastic structure, meaning the first qualities and the last qualities are parallel. They're mirrors of each other. The second set of qualities and the next to last set of qualities are similar. And the the purpose of a chiastic structure is to bring you logically to a point of thought. So you have have the first structures, the first qualities and the last qualities move you to another layer of thinking and then to another layer of thinking until you say, okay, that's the point. This is the point that Paul is bringing us to. So let me see if I can build this for you. The first layer of description that Paul is referring to here has to do with a person's affections, their heart. Look at the first two. For people will be what? Lovers of self, lovers of money. Look at the last two. In verse 4, at the end of verse 4, they will be lovers of pleasure and what? Not lovers of God. Not lovers of God. Brandon, could you grab me two fresh batteries from that room? I'm hearing this go out just a little bit. Thank you. So what does it mean to love self? This this is the foundation of what we see in this description of, of people who cause times to become dangerous. Lovers of self, one's personal interests are all consuming. Most important to them. They're what? They're selfish. And if you love yourself above all else, then you'll love money. Why? Because you will have a strong desire 
to acquire the ability to buy yourself power and pleasure and praise. Money is a powerful tool, isn't it? You can spend it on what? Yourself. And so then the reason you love money is because you love pleasure. The great ambition for sensual fulfillment, that's pleasure. To live for earthly and bodily experiences of whatever feels good and looks good and tastes good, sounds good, smells good, all manner of earthly, physical, sensual delights. That's your ambition if you're a lover of pleasure. And the reason you love self and money and sensual pleasure above all else is why? Because you're not a lover of God. You don't love God. Let me change my batteries here. You don't love God, no affection for God, no desire to know God or enjoy God or bring Him honor or worship or praise or thanks. No affection toward God has been building up in your heart. You're depraved if you're not a lover of God. In fact, your affection toward God has been exchanged for another affection, right? The affection for self, the worship of self. This is the description that we see in Romans 1, 21 to 23, for example. Right? They, even though they knew God, they did not see fit to give thanks to God. And they began to worship and serve the creature other than the Creator who is blessed forever. And this is the fundamental problem, fundamental problem with those who cause seasons of time to be dangerous. This fundamental problem is with humanity. This is how we're born to the world. We have a misdirected, perverted, twisted, idolatrous heart. That's the fundamental issue. So then how do people who are ruled by self-love live? How do they live? How do they live toward other people? Well, now you have the second layer that's built. There's the fundamental layer. Here's the second layer. Verse 2. They will be then proud, arrogant, and abusive. Proud. They will boast about themselves. They will speak highly of themselves. If you're proud, you're a braggart. You always have to play one-upmanship with other people. You're arrogant. You show yourself above others by treating them with contempt, others with contempt. You're disdainful toward others. Everything has to be about you and your advancement in the eyes of others. And at some point, you become abusive This word doesn't appear often in the Bible, but here it is. It's to seek someone's harm by evil words, seeking to hurt someone mentally or emotionally by speaking of them, and specifically, in this case, to them, with vicious, cutting words. And these expressions of self-love and extreme exaltation of self over others, it continues. Notice here, the end of verse 4, or the beginning of verse 4, again, there is treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Again, very similar to these first words, speaking of pride. 
If you love yourself rather than God, then you're certainly not going to love other people and you will be treacherous toward people. That means to be disloyal. You will betray others' trust. You're a traitor. If you're treacherous, you will give up someone else to harm. You'll be willing to give up someone else to harm in order to preserve or benefit yourself. That's treacherous, isn't it? Think about how selfish that is. To give up someone else to harm for your own benefit. You're reckless. Those who are proud are also reckless. They behave thoughtlessly, rashly, in word or action without considering the effects of their words or action on others. The one object is what? To please myself. One commentator illustrated it this way. You're like a hedgehog who rolls up in a ball to defend oneself. You've got all spines and prickles outside. And on the inside, you've got warm, soft fur all to yourself. Interesting illustration, isn't it? Reckless. You're swollen with conceit. Inflated with arrogance. Blinded by your own pride. Stupid with your own self-esteem. Now, these expressions of self-love, which define a dangerous age, are not hindered or held back or diminished even when it comes to family relationships. Notice how Paul continues here. For these are also disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and unappeasable. Those who are proud and love themselves eventually will make it a way of life to be disobedient to parents. You know, you think about that sin and you think, wow, every kid's disobedient to their parents. Look how seriously God takes this. Disobedient to parents is an expression of loving self rather than loving God. You're not submitting yourself to the goodness of God expressed to you by giving you someone to submit yourself to, an authority to care for you. It's a rebellion against the authority that God has set up, namely fathers and mothers. There's there's also this ingratitude. They're ungrateful. No appreciation for the care that parents give. There's such an extreme self-focus that any expression of love and care toward them feels deserved and expected, so it goes almost unnoticed. Think about that. What is noticed is when kindness and generosity is withheld. And it's, and it's probably even met with anger. Why? Because they feel entitled. Entitlement. That's a word that goes around often nowadays, isn't it? Unholy. This word for unholy has to do with respect, actually. They're without respect for God and other people, and so therefore they're without respect toward family members, especially toward parents. Heartless. Heartless. Utterly lacking in normal human affections, whether from parents to children or children to parents. The selfishness is so destructive that they're lacking. It's it's corrupted even their normal human affections. Natural creaturely affection and care is replaced with neglect or even hostility. 
unappeasable, refusing to reconcile, forgive, or even come together to work things out relationally. Yeah, it seems like it's getting harder and harder to even get together with people that there's a, a wrong between to make things right. Refusal to make a covenant is what that word means. I'm not going to covenant with you. I won't even think about it. Unappeasable. When you come down then, you see also without self-control, brutal, not loving good. This is just escalates the depravity without self-control. Ungovernable. Powerless to reign in various passions. Brutal. Savage. Fierce. Untamed. There, there's a, a synonym for the, the day itself. Dangerous. Not loving good. See, it's not, that, it's not that these folks are struggling against the sp- expressions of their own self-love and the, losing the fight. They actually love evil and hate good. They oppose what is defined by goodness and they endorse what is wicked. And I want you to see now what is the center of this whole list. Slanderous. Now that may, not, that may surprise you that that's the center of that list, but I see something you don't. When I look at that word slanderous, you know what that word is? That's the word for devil. That's the same word. Diabolos. That's that word. And that says a lot, doesn't it? That, that throws you back up into 2 Timothy chapter 2 because you see that the, the devil there who captivates and snares and wants to control people for his own selfish ends has had a massive effect on humanity. Diabolical. You see, the evil one has destroyed the character of others. And that's what slandering does. It's to destroy the character and reputation of others behind their backs in particular. And we could say it this way. These folks have become like their father, the devil. That's sad, isn't it? That's heart-wrenching. So this is what it looks like to have life without love. And it's not a pretty sight, is it? Do these descriptions remind you of people in our present culture? This is a detailed portrait of fallen humanity in whom the image of God has been greatly corrupted and in whom a likeness of their father the devil is being reflected. And let me underscore this, that the fundamental problem that produces all the rest of this depravity is what? Men love themselves rather than God. How does that diagnosis, that, that's Paul's diagnosis of the problem, right? Men love themselves rather than God. How does that diagnosis align with the diagnosis that the world gives to itself as the cause for many of the mental, emotional, and interpersonal problems that we have today? Does it align? No. Not very well. The modern psychology diagnosis, the modern, that, that, as it diagnoses the modern problems with the modern person, they often say this, the problem is, is that you hate yourself. Isn't that so common? You hate yourself. You, you don't love yourself enough. You need some self-esteem. You need to get around people who will speak highly of you so you feel better about yourself. 
You need to learn to love yourself. How often have we heard that? Who's behind that diagnosis? The evil one? God's Word shows us that that the world has turned the real problem into a solution and the real solution into the problem. Right? The Bible says so clearly, and I'm not going to get into a whole discussion now about self-esteem and self-love and all that. So I'm, just, I'm just stating things that the Bible says for now without, without further explanation. But Ephesians 5.29 says plainly, No one ever hated his own flesh. So if people say, the reason I am like this is because I hate myself, you're like, you've got the wrong diagnosis. I'll tell you, we can talk about what is, but you've got the wrong one if you think it's you don't love yourself. They're lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's the problem, not the solution. The solution is that men come to love God rather than themselves. That alone will right the human heart. That alone will rejoice the human soul. That alone will restore human flourishing to love God rather than myself. That's what we need. That's what we need to have happen down deep in our hearts. We'll return to this word of truth and hope in just a moment in our conclusion. And we're not going to always be pointing the fingers at the culture either. Believe me, this text is all pointed at me and I'll share that with you. And it won't be fun, but it'll be helpful to us. But at this point in the message, let's just say this. By God's grace, dear ones, let's not get drawn into the lies that the devil has sown through his, this world's sinister system. This is the first description that Paul gives of the people who cause an era of time to be dangerous. Let's understand this. Let's understand these words in these difficult days and those who affect them, but avoid being influenced by it. Now, you would think that these descriptions of a life of without love, that these people wouldn't want anything to do with religion, right? You would think that. But the next thing that Paul explains is that actually can be very religious people. And this is what makes them so dangerous to the church of Jesus Christ. The second description of the people who affect dangerous times is that they have form without power. So life without love, form without power. Here's what we come to at, I'm sorry, got ahead a little bit. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Let's talk about that. The people who cause times to be dangerous are not only in the world, they are also in the visible church. And we've talked about that in, in, in sections gone by of 2 Timothy. In fact, some of the most hideous and shameful immoral activities done by mankind against mankind throughout human history have been done by people in the name of religion who claim to be very religious and even followers of Christ, God forbid. But their expression of godliness or piety is only what? What is it? It's an appearance. It's hypocritical. It's a facade. It's a form. It's a front. It's a show. It's external entirely. These people who attend... Who, These people who attend church gatherings, offer prayers, 
participate in the ordinances, sing songs, give money, read the Bibles, even lead some ministry. It's all, it's all a form. It's all an external show. But they walk through all these external forms and at the same time, what are they doing? They're denying its power. They're denying the power of true godliness. They reject the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The saving power of the gospel is the power of the risen Christ to release those who submit to His Lordship, to release them from punishment of sin and the power of sin and and the practice of sin, even someday the presence of sin. That's the power of the gospel. Christ sets us free. But we must submit to His Lordship, right? This is the inevitable effect of repentance and faith toward Christ as Lord. And this saving power manifests itself through a life of continuing faith toward Christ and repentance from sin. And they refuse that. Let me show you this in a text that's familiar to you, but maybe we can just catch a fresh glimpse of it. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7? I want you to look at verses 21 to 23 with me. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We have to understand something. My brothers and sisters in Christ, please understand this. There are things of the church life that can be done by an unbeliever. And then there are things that can only be done by one who is in Christ. And sometimes we confuse the two. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. This, this person, this false teacher says, look what I have done. Look at the external religion that, that, that I occupied, was busy with in my life. I, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I did many mighty works in your name. I did things. Religious, external forms of things. What was missing in this text, according to this, these three verses? What was missing is they did not submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ, nor did they repent of their sin. You see it. Those who do the will of my Father. Verse 23, I never knew you. You were a worker of what? Lawlessness. No repentance. No submission to Christ. But lots of external religious performance. You can be an unbeliever and do a lot of church things. But that's not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is a changed heart that loves to do the will of God even though you struggle still with your own sin and desires to turn from lawlessness even though you struggle to still do it. The heart of the gospel, the very very core of a changed life 
is you have a different response to your own sin. You have a different response to the will of God. So these, these, these people in this text, as well as the people in, in 2 Timothy 3, 1-9, they, they love lawlessness and yet have a form of religion. And what must our response be to these? Professors of the Lord, turn away from them. Don't fellowship with them. Discipline them from the body of Christ. That's Paul's exhortation to us. Avoid such people. They're dangerous. These who promote this kind of religion are dangerous to the body of Christ. Now, in a sense that we would hope that these self-loving people who have a form of religion would remain passive about their religion and leave others alone, but they don't. That's the problem. That's part of why it's a dangerous day to live in. They often appear in the visible church as false teachers. So number three, discipleship without truth. Discipleship without truth. So you have life without love. And you have now discipleship without truth. You have form without power. How do these selfish, hypocritical, false teachers propagate their teachings? Verse 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. Always learning. Never able to come or arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Notice their methods of discipleship. These people are genuinely what? Creepy. They are. They creep. And it's really not funny. They're, they cunningly sneak and worm their way in the back door undercover while the men of the house are gone. You see? That's the kind of tact they take. This is exactly opposite to 2 Corinthians 4.2 where Paul says, by an open statement of the truth, we proclaim the gospel to you. These men are sneaky. They're sneaky. And they capture. They creep and they capture. That's their method. They lead away people as prisoners of war. They capture one's minds. They gain power over people personally. They're not interested in, in, in br- bringing people to be overpowered by the Lordship of Christ, they want personal power over people. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 2.26 again, and the devil's desire to snare and capture people. They're acting like their father the devil. Notice the candidates of their discipleship. There's the methods. They creep and capture. Who are the candidates? Weak women. First of all, just, just think in terms of women. This is not a derogatory term that Paul is using here. The New Testament constantly exalts women. Wherever Christianity goes, the value of women is exalted. This is a particular description of a person, a weak woman. But I want you to also notice that these wicked men do not pursue God's pattern of responsibility and headship and integrity in their discipleship. In other words, men discipling men, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, and women discipling women, Titus 2, 3-5. They cross God's pattern and creep into houses to capture women for discipleship 
And this method sounds very darkly familiar, doesn't it? What does it remind you of? Exactly. Who did Satan come to in the garden? Eve. That's wrong. That's wrong. So I just want to encourage, just take a moment. This isn't the point of the message, but I just want to take a moment to encourage all of you men as you pursue others to discipleship, as you, as you seek to win a family to Christ and confront, lovingly confront sin with gentleness and meekness, go to the man. It's easier sometimes to talk to the woman because as God says, she is the weaker vessel. But go to the man, men. Please, go to the men and do this God's way and protect the body of Christ. And these particular women, Paul says, are weak. These women are particularly vulnerable women. Paul isn't, again, being degrading toward women by this term. He's making a distinction between a typical woman and these particular women who are described as spiritually, morally, even intellectually weak, and they are certainly unstable, idle, silly, this word is used for immature, gullible, childish, and are therefore a fitting target for the discipleship of these false teachers. These are the kinds of people, these are the kinds of women that false teachers prey upon. You have to notice this. This is part of what Paul wants us to understand. This is what they do. This is their tact. So you have particular methods and you have particular candidates for their discipleship. And these aren't just weak women. What, how does Paul describe their particular weakness? Well, they are burdened with sins. Referring to their weakness. They're uniquely susceptible to false teachers because they're overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame and disgrace because of their sin. And the false teacher will prey upon their sense of guilt and lead them captive to their many religious performances. This reminds me of, for example, Colossians 2, 8-23, through 23, where the Apostle Paul says to the Colossian church, let no one captivate you with human philosophy or empty deceit. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. If you're in Christ... You are free from guilt. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You don't have to become captive by all these legalistic, external, mystical, religious performances that people want to hoist upon you to control you and to use you. Colossians 2, 8-23. You can look at that later on this week. But how often do false teachers prey upon people's guilt, promising appeasement of that guilt in order to get their way over them? Guilt is one of the most powerful tools to control people, right? And Christ sets us free from that guilt. This is so opposite to the way discipleship happens biblically. There's enslaved women, right? They're... they're, It says here, they're led astray by various passions. So they're burdened with sins, they're led astray by various passions. Referring again to the weakness of these women, even though they are continually beaten down by guilt, they are still a slave to their own various strong and sinful desires. 
Again, the false teacher will prey upon these various passions and use them to lead these weak women around to do their sinful, manipulative will. And what's the outcome of their discipleship? So you have here a description of the method of the disciples that they pursue, the the candidates for discipleship, and then the outcome. These, their disciples are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is a unbelievably, what's the word? Terrifying, is it? Expression, a state of being, ever learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. These women are always learning. There is an endless, there is an endless number of counterfeit doctrines. There is an endless number of distracting questions to keep a person's mind away from truth. Satan has invented them all. And they keep learning, and that's the kind of discipleship that happens. These women are never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth, never able to come to a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They continue to wander in the wilderness of error and ignorance. What a horrific picture of the discipleship during seasons of danger. Number four, testing without approval. Another description of these men in verse 8, Paul compares these false teachers to Janus and Jambres. Who are they? These are the only, this is the only time these names show up in the Bible, Janus and Jambres. But if you look at the Jewish Targum, which is a Jewish document of interpretation of the Hebrew texts, you will find that they are the names of the Egyptian magicians or sorcerers that Pharaoh called to counter the miracles and message of Moses. This is an amazing Old Testament backdrop that Paul puts into this text. This is the first bright spot we get to in this text to see what God does to preserve His truth. I know this is a heavy text. I feel it with you. I've been in it all week. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Think about this. What happened? What happened at that encounter between Moses and these two magicians? Well, Exodus 7.11 reminds us that Moses comes into the, the presence of Pharaoh and says, God has commanded to you to let his people go that they may worship Him. And He will show His mighty power in the deliverance of His people. And so what is the first sign that Moses gives? That the message he is speaking is a message of truth. He throws his staff down, right? And the staff turns into a snake. Well, Janus and Jambres. (laughs) They come along and they're evil magicians, they're sorcerers, they're messengers of Satan, and they throw their staffs down and they turn into snakes. Well, in Exodus 7.22, Moses turns the water into blood. And they do the same thing. They turn water into blood. In Exodus 8.7, 
Moses calls frogs to come out of the Nile. And Janus and Jambres call frogs to come out of the Nile as well. In these three cases, Janus and Jambres did a counterfeit miracle that looked like the miracle that God did through Moses. Why did they do that? Moses came with a message of truth from Yahweh, the God of Israel and the one true God. The message of truth was confirmed as true and from Yahweh by the miracles that God worked through Moses so that everyone would know that the presence of God was there, that he is the one, Yahweh is the one true and living God. So, Janus and Jambres presented a counterfeit miracle by satanic, demonic power in order to oppose the message of the truth given through Moses, in order to make the message of truth from Yahweh seem like a lie. You see how that can happen? And so Paul compares Janus and Jambres to the false teachers who emerged during these times of difficulty. The times of difficulty are filled with false teachers who also oppose the truth by doing what? Giving a counterfeit message. And certainly along with counterfeit signs too, don't they? Not that far off. It's a good comparison. They compete with the message of Paul that God inspired through him from Christ. The true gospel. These false teachers give a counterfeit gospel in order to discredit and destroy the true gospel and its messengers. And why do they do this? Because it says here, they oppose the truth and they're corrupted in mind. Their minds have been corrupted by the evil one. Their minds have been ravaged by the lies of Satan. That's, that's the word corrupted. Just like Paul wrote of false teachers in 1 Timothy 6.5, these men are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And therefore, Paul gives them a final fitting description. They are what? And that's where I get the title for the point. They are tested without approval. They are disqualified regarding the faith. The faith, what is that? Remember, that refers to the body of doctrine that has been delivered to us through, from Christ through the apostles by the inspiration of the Spirit set in the New Testament inerrantly and passed on from generation to generation by faithful believers. That's the faith. It's the gospel. But when it comes to accurate understanding and accurate teaching of the faith, these men, like Janice and Jambres, these men... These false teachers are absolutely disqualified. That's a, that's a really illustrative word, disqualified. It's a word that's often used of metals and coins that were evaluated and declared as unfit for commerce. They're fake. So these men being tested fail the test of truth miserably. These, these truth-opposing false teachers are spurious. They're reprobate and rejected by God and by the truth of Jesus Christ. And these are many of the religious leaders during the days of difficulty. You know, it has burdened my heart more often lately than, than ever before just to, to be aware even of the teaching around our town. 
you can go into a, a gathering and not even hear a way of salvation. And yet there's just people flocking to hear it. No salvation taught. No true gospel. Some religious nothing. How horrific is that? And so we must be watchful for them and warn others about them, even by name. Paul warns of people by name throughout his letters. Watchful for them and warn others about them so that we may not be drawn into their deception. Finally, and here's where we, we really come to some sweet comfort. Finally, the tide turns here in the text, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as it was with those of with with as it was that of those two men. Again, continuing the illustration of Jam, Janus and Jambres, Paul alludes to them in verse nine by saying that they didn't get very far. They didn't get very far because their folly became plain to everybody. Do you remember how the folly? The madness of the magicians became plain to everyone observing. Do you remember that? This is where we are then given good news. Again, Exodus 7.11, Moses throws his staff down and the serpent is there from the staff. Janice and Jabris throw their staffs down and what happened? Moses' staff eats, or Moses' snake staff, whatever, eats theirs. I love that. God shows himself glorious and powerful even in the presence of false teachers. Or Exodus 8, 18 through 19. There comes Moses. All right, gnats. And they try gnats and whatever they're doing, I don't know. But no gnats. They can't do it. And then Exodus 9, 11, the boils came. And they were so horrible that Janus and Jambres couldn't get out of bed. That's not what it says. But they couldn't appear before Pharaoh. They, they were too stricken. The magician's opposition, even though disturbing for a time, was short-lived. And in the end, Yahweh's messengers and Yahweh's truth prevailed over all. They don't get very far. We have to remember that. They won't get very far. The magicians were found to be foolish. They didn't make progress over Moses or Yahweh's message of truth through him. Yahweh's purposes were gloriously, powerfully, and completely fulfilled. I love to read through the Exodus account and see God say over and over again his purposes. I'm going to read them to you. Exodus 8.10, so that you may know that there was no one like Yahweh our God. Exodus 8.22, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Yahweh 9.14, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Exodus 9.16, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 9.29, so that you may, so, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. Exodus 14.4 I will get glory of Pharaoh over Pharaoh and all his host 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Exodus 14, 17, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. Exodus 14, 31, Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Isn't that fantastic? God's purposes will not be thwarted in the world, even by false teachers. They won't get very far. Janice and Jambres didn't get very far, did they? No, they didn't. And we, can, we know that. We can just think of the Red Sea and what God did gloriously for His people. And neither will these self-loving, creeping, captivating, disqualified false prophets. They won't get very far. They won't make much progress. Their apparent success will be slim and short-lived. Why? Because the madness of their message will, in God's perfect time, become plain to all. You know, we are often grieved and burdened by false teachers and their messages. Yes, I know when we should be. Angered even. Righteously angered. Over the deception of these deceivers when we see the number of the deceived who follow them but we must learn to take heart in the final and eternal triumph of the truth. They won't get very far. Third and fourth verse of a mighty fortress is our God. Let me bring this to your remembrance. And though this world with devils filled, perfect, right? Right in the text. Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the end of the story. So, By the grace of God, by the grace of Christ, understand days of difficulty and those who affect those days, but avoid being influenced by them. Now, as we conclude this morning, I want to turn, return to a focus once again for just a few moments on the fundamental issue of the human heart. Remember? What's what's the cause of all this? Love of self rather than love of God. The problem with people who cause dangerous seasons is the depravity of the human heart. We love ourselves, our sensual pleasures, and the ability to satisfy our pleasures rather than God. And what a foolish and futile affection that is, considering our own corruption. We're not worthy of that love. The corruptibility of things of the world and the, the infinite greatness and goodness of God? Why do we love ourselves over God? This is nothing less than insanity, all things considered. But as I said, before we point all the fingers outside of this building, we must come to see that this is the condition of our own fallen humanness. Our hearts beat like this from the moment we are born. It's true. 
And if we are even more thoughtful and honest before God, we will find these propensities still lingering in our hearts and the depravity that still remains within us as believers. Just consider this one question. Do you always love God more than yourself as a motivation for the things that you do from day to day? I personally cannot think of a more convicting question and a question that makes me say, like Isaiah, woe is me, right? Remembering the depravity of our own hearts ought to sober us and convict us deeply for the love that we have for ourselves. Sometimes I feel that my heart is so deceptive, I can't even tell if I love myself or God in many of the things that I do. Is that true for you too? I want God to change me. I want Him to change you. Look at that list and I think that is dangerous to be like that. It's destructive. What does it lead to? We have the capacity within us to follow this sinister course that our text has detailed for us and to do harm to the church of Jesus Christ. That's, that's in here. Loving ourselves more than we love God. That sounds so simple to say, doesn't it? So we come to the end of this and we say, is there hope for us then? Is there hope for false teachers even? Who make perilous these times? And the answer is yes. Christ is our hope. And the transforming power of the gospel. You see, only the gospel of Jesus Christ accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, can transform hearts. That's what we need to happen. Heart has to be changed. Basic nature has to be reborn. There's, there's no religious system of humanity that can do that. Only the gospel accompanied by spirit and power and full conviction And that alone will continue to transform our own hearts from any remaining depravity and move us from loving ourselves first to learning to love God above all else in everything we do. That's, that is, you could call that a summary of sanctification. Learning to love God more than I love myself. And the problem with loving God is that it's not difficult to love God. That's not the problem. Is God difficult to love? (laughs) You know, it's, it's not the way it is. He is infinitely glorious. The problem is that our eyes must be lifted up from gazing at refuse and desiring it to behold His infinite worth and desiring Him above all else. Listen to these two texts. The first one is general this is what we need. We ourselves were once foolish. Titus 3, 3-7. Three we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, <coughs> passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then what happens? The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appears to us. The Scripture is open to us, and we see Jesus in all this saving power. And He saves us. He rescues us. And it's not about anything we do. It's not according to anything done by us in works of righteousness. That has no part in our salvation. Our works can't even begin to change who we are. But, according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, you see, for salvation to happen, for people to stop loving themselves and start loving God, there has to be rebirth. You have to have a new heart. You have to have the Spirit indwell you and make you love different things and hate what you ought to hate and love what you ought to love. But He does that. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He pours out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We'll be wise instead of foolish. We'll be obedient instead of disobedient. We'll be led by Christ instead of being led by various passions and pleasures. Instead of passing our days in malice and envy, we'll want to pass our days in love and kindness and service. We may still be hated by others, but we'll love them in return. That requires a changed heart. And that's what the gospel does through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we all need to continue to recur to the work of Christ and see Him, by His grace, change us. And I think about this. Can a false teacher be saved? Who was a false teacher in the New Testament that was saved? Who? Paul was. Do you forget about that? So 1 Timothy 2, 12-17, I thank Him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. That's one of the words in that list that we talked about. A persecutor, an insolent opponent. Ah, opponent of what? The truth. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life to the King of Ages. Right? Be Honor and glory, the, the immortal, the invisible, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That, that's all that results is a praise to God. And so as believers, we need to cry out to God in this text and ask God to continue to renew our hearts, our minds, to love Him more than we love ourselves. Pray about it. Talk to God about it. Ask Him to show you your self-love. And ask Him to take it from you by the means that He would choose. 
And pray for others. Pray for one another. Pray, pray for false teachers in our community to be saved. Pray for the deceived masses to be released from their deception. Only God grants repentance, right? We just looked at that. Only God grants that repentance. This morning, if you are still without Christ, still loving yourself rather than God, without a new heart or the Holy Spirit, Within you to fight against those depraved, deceitful desires, I urge you this morning to run to Christ. You do not want to continue in a life that loves self more than God. The end of the way of that life is only eternal, righteous wrath of God against you forever for your idolatry. You need someone to make you right with God. You need someone to make your heart new. You need that. You can't do that for yourself. And in great mercy and love, God has provided Christ for us to be our righteousness, to atone for us, to absorb His wrath, to command the Holy Spirit to live in us, to reign over us and rule us, so that we learn to love God more than ourselves. We need, you need, if that's you, you need to be born again. Ask God. And he is rich in mercy. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we, we have looked at this text together. And I believe that we have been sobered by it. And we see ourselves better through it. And we see the world around us better through this lens. And we see you better. So Father, we ask you... Yahweh, our God, have your purposes. Show your mighty power among us. Let the truth prevail. Do not let false teaching or false teachers get very far. Exalt the gospel among us. Transform our hearts. May we learn to love you and honor you above all. For your glory we pray in the glory of the Son. In the name of Jesus, amen.